0: Good morning. We're going to be looking this morning at Mary's Christmas. You know, we're all so used to hearing "Merry Christmas," "Merry Christmas," "Merry Christmas" to you too. Well, Mary had a Christmas. You know, it's uh, one of the first bursts of insight I had as a child was when I was singing "Mary Had a Little Lamb." and I suddenly connected it to Jesus and his mother Mary. You know, because I I think I'd read, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I'm not sure about it, but I I think that that little children's song may in fact be uh, referencing our Lord Jesus and his mother Mary. So we're going to be going through the Christmas story from Mary's perspective, from her point of view. And you're going to find, as we're going to see next week, we will have Joseph's Christmas. And there is a whole lot in Joseph's Christmas that is not mentioned in Mary's Christmas. And we'll take a look at that and, and, and think about why that might be. But let's begin with the fact That Mary was chosen by God's grace. In Luke chapter 1 and verses 26 through 34 we read in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the Virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, in this passage, there's a lot that we could go. We could go to angelology. Uh, We could look at the whole idea of angels being messengers from God. But what I pick up in this uh, greeting of the angel Gabriel is his excitement. Something is finally happening that has been promised from long, long before. And he's really excited about it. And he knows that Mary has been favored by God to be the one through whom this prophecy, this promise will be fulfilled. And his enthusiasm comes through in the grammar of greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with thee. But that was confusing to Mary because she, as a a peasant, as a a young maiden, as a virgin, you know, she's uh, not used to talking to strangers, right? Uh, But this phrase, favored one, has some theological implications for us. It's actually the word charitu and it means to grace someone, to, to give someone a gift, to endue with special honor, to make something accepted and highly favored. That's the grammar, that's the definition. And so in the context here, we have the statement that Mary is not being chosen because of her merit. But rather because of God's favor, God's grace. This is a, uh, a grace that is being given to her. And she was confused by this greeting. And so Gabriel begins to elaborate, and he says to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God." And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now imagine you're a peasant girl and you're being told, You're going to have a baby boy. This is going to be his name. And he's going to have a kingdom that will reign forever and ever. And her response to this was How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, Mary does not ask for a sign that this is true, she asks only for an explanation of how this works. And she, in this dialogue with Gabriel, she's revealing something here about her attitude toward God and her attitude toward her circumstances. She's not doubting that his word is going to be fulfilled. She's wondering how it's going to be fulfilled. And I think that's the way we should approach God and his promises as well. Rather than doubting that God is there or doubting that God can do what he says, we need to only be asking, well, how is this going to work? What's the means by which it happens? What part do I play in this coming to pass? Now, we see in this statement concerning Jesus that he's going to be both God and man. How well this came through to Mary herself, we don't know, but The angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in answer to her question, how can this be? And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy or separated, the Son of God. Now, the implications of this are huge because Mary conceived Jesus by the creative Word of God. The God the Father speaks, the Spirit of God moves, and the Word of God is incarnated in Mary's womb. We see the Trinity acting in a coordinated way to bring this wonderful miracle of our salvation to pass. But by being the Son of Mary, His human mother, Jesus, would be able to fully represent mankind in his act as a substitutionary sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement. It would not work theologically for God to die himself as God alone, because that does not atone for our sin. Neither would it work for him to be merely human for then he would not be able to represent uh, the work of God as an act of mercy. And so by being the Son of God, his, his divine Father, Jesus would be able to express God's love by bearing God's wrath on the cross. This is an amazing, profound theological truth. Jesus is both God and man, not half God and half man, but fully God and fully man. And therefore, he is able to fulfill both the representing us to God and representing God to us, simultaneously. That's amazing. So even though Mary did not ask for a sign, God gave her a sign anyway. And we see that sign in his his announcement that your relative Elizabeth, who is her cousin, her cousin Elizabeth, in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. So Elizabeth had been unable to conceive, and now in her old age she has conceived, and we have the story about how all of that happens and how her husband uh, doubted the angel and was given a sign by being unable to speak until the baby was born. And being instructed to name him John, even though there was no one in the family that, uh, that would honor, which was important, just as we do today. We name our children often after some uh, family member that we wish to honor. And so he then finds his voice after writing down, his name shall be John. But that Mary was not part of all of that. She didn't see all of that. She only went to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Uh, in in her last days of her pregnancy. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary's obedient faith deserves great honor. In fact, much greater honor than she normally receives within the Protestant churches. This is an example of our overreaction. But Mary deserves less honor than is often given to her in the Catholic Church. And this is a classic example of what I mean when I say there is a ditch on both sides of the road of every truth. The ditch on the Protestant side is to dishonor Mary out of fear that we might be accused of Mary worship which is a real problem on the other side of the road of truth, where the Catholics have come up with all kinds of extra-biblical events, the Immaculate Conception and all the rest, in order to uh, make Mary holy enough to have enough merit to be worthy to be the means by which the Son of God comes into the world. And so you can see what's going on here. On the one hand, we're giving her way too much honor, and to the point of worship, uh, I, my wife Bonnie and I had an interesting conversation with a, a dear lady over in Sisters. And she was definitely into Mary worship. And she would only pray to Mary. And we tried to convince her that uh, Jesus would uh, be happy to have her pray directly to him. He's not that busy, okay? She was convinced that Jesus has got so much going on, it's better just to talk to his mom, and then she would talk to Jesus about it. And she's very persuasive, of course, being a mother. And we were trying to get through to her. And, uh, and, and I don't even remember how we finally resolved it. But I remember telling her that uh, God is able to listen and hear you. And he's not too busy to hear your prayers. But it was just so sad. That's what false doctrine does. False doctrine gives you a false map of reality. And no matter how hard you try to follow it, it always takes you to the wrong places because it's a false map. You don't live on the planet that that map is, is, is referencing. You need to have an accurate map, a true faith, a true religion. is going to be an accurate map of where you actually live. And when you follow that map, it will take you to where you want to go. And so... Here we find Mary, uh, the wonderful woman who is deserving of honor. And let us all be not like some Protestant churches who dishonor her, but rather let us give her the honor that she is due. This is a remarkable woman. Remarkable by God's grace. Remarkable because she was favored by God. But just as we would honor the Apostle Paul and Peter and the other Apostles, we, we can find it in our hearts and in our theology to honor Mary as well. So Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And we see in Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now notice Mary doesn't even mention Elizabeth. Uh, Hey, why isn't, uh, why isn't Zechariah talking? Okay, she just kind of blow, blows right past that. I mean, that would be my first question. Hey, Zechariah! What's wrong with Zechariah? But Mary doesn't, doesn't go there. There's a lot that she goes right past. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This is John the Baptist doing a jig in Mary's womb because he's now in the presence of the Son of God, his cousin, uh, Jesus. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we see it right here. She exclaimed with a loud cry, and she launches into a blessing. Now, I think I've doubled my slide there, haven't I? Okay. Whenever anyone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they're going to either deliver a blessing from God or express worship to God. We see this later in Paul's epistles where he describes the gifts of the Spirit and how they work. And we see these remarkable uh, orientations that are involved in prophecy versus tongues and how in tongues we're expressing worship to God and in a prophecy we're hearing something from God. And a lot of charismatics just totally ignore all of that and just go with the flow and whatever feels good. But there is detailed instruction in God's Word as to how to respond to the nudging and the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so we find that uh, Elizabeth in Her joy expresses this blessing to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 42. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do you realize what outrageous statements are being made in this short passage? God is now present in the womb of Mary. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." That is the description of Mary's response to the angel Gabriel by the inspiration, by the way, of the Holy Spirit. We're being told by God through the Holy Spirit what was going on in the mind of Mary at that moment when she was told she was going to bear a son. Now, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit to speak out for God. And she prophesied these truths because Mary needed to hear them. This reminds us of when Paul tells us that those who speak in the church by the inspiration of the Spirit are to do so for edification and comfort. And that's what we see happening here. It's one of the first instances of a New Testament gift of the Spirit of God in the form of prophecy from this Woman. Now, Mary was then inspired to prophesy her own beautiful Magnificat. Now, the Magnificat is is named because of the way in which it begins My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, when we hear the word magnifies, we need to stop and think about the way in which that word is used. If we're talking about a microscope, then we're taking something that's really tiny and we're magnifying it to the point where we can see it clearly. But the other way that we magnify something is we we point our telescope at something that is absolutely huge but so far away that we can hardly see it, and we magnify it in order to bring it closer to us so that we can comprehend something that is, in fact, huge. And in this case, Mary is magnifying the Lord because he's huge, not because he's tiny. He is huge. And so here we have the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Did you hear that? His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The fear that is in view here is a kind of fear that is not just terror, but rather a a deep respect for, appreciation for who this is. This is God. This is your creator. And those who honor and respect him, that his mercy is there for you from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now that's an interesting phrase. He didn't say, she doesn't say, he has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This is confusion. This is the same kind of confusion we see at the Tower of Babel. It's the same kind of confusion that we see coming in Romans chapter 1, where God gives men and women over to a uh, a confused mind. And so God, we must remember, is in complete control of whether or not you can even finish a sentence in your brain. And when he chooses to withdraw that ability And when he brings confusion, even to the point of uh, delusion, to the point that the, the whole world would believe a lie, and only those who were inhabited by the Spirit of God would be able to see through it. It would be so deceptive that even the elect of God could almost be deceived. That's pretty serious, isn't it? I want you to stop and be thankful for the fact that God has not allowed you to be so confused as to disbelieve the gospel and to believe the lies of this world. That is a, that is a means of his grace toward you. He has given you the ability to see the truth and believe it and be saved. That's how sovereign grace works. And so it says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now these are some really important statements coming from the mother of our Lord Jesus as she is inspired by the Holy Spirit to prophesy concerning what God is accomplishing by bringing his Son into this world. We find these things, all of the things in this Magnificat are confirmed in other passages in God's Word, such as we find in James, where he says, Woe to you rich! You have heaped together treasure and gold in the last days as as though you were fattening yourselves up for slaughter. I mean, there's some pretty serious things said about those who are rich as opposed to those who are the humble and the poor in this world. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, we could take an entire passage or several a series Unpack this beautiful passage. But Mary realizes that her son is the hoped-for Messiah. But even though she's prophesying these things, no one but God at this point understands the full implications of what that will mean. And this is something that we see in the scriptures as well, that those who prophesy don't always know what their own prophecies mean. They prophesy because they're inspired by God, but that doesn't mean they have the the knowledge, the intellect, the inside information to know exactly how it's going to work or even what it actually means. Now, God reveals his sovereignty over all things in what happens next. In Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quineris was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now what is this all about? This is about taxes. This is about knowing who we've got in our, in our empire and how to make sure that each and every one of them are paying their proper share of taxes toward the empire of Rome. And there's a lot of corruption at this time in the Roman Empire but uh, it is a a time in which uh, great progress is being made in terms of the Roman roads are being built and Roman fortresses are being built and Roman garrisons are being stationed. And so what becomes the Pax Romana is established. And it is because of that Pax Romana that the gospel is able to go forth into the world at that time on those Roman roads and often with, as we see in the life of Paul, the protection of those Roman soldiers. So God is sovereignly setting the stage not only for the birth of Christ, not only for the life of Christ, but also for the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel. This is what is referred to in scriptures as the fullness of times. When everything comes together, just the right time in the right way, For the gospel to go out and for souls to begin to be harvested for the kingdom of God. And so all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee. There it is. From the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So she's now, she's pregnant. Now it is not a wonderful thing to be told, Honey, we're going to have to take a, about a three day trip on a donkey to get to Bethlehem so that uh, I can pay my taxes. I can just hear the, Oh honey, do we have to? We don't get any of that. And we don't know exactly how much of what. uh, Of the prophecies that Mary was familiar with. We like to think of her as being a Bible scholar. But we don't know for sure. You know. But we do know that God is moving people around the world. In order to make sure that Jesus is born in just the right place. So why does all this matter? Because it was foretold in prophecy. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. This is the child who will crush the head of the serpent as it was announced in Genesis chapter 3. And so in Luke chapter 2 and verse 6, we read, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we have so many... Elaborations on this simple phrase, "There was no room for them in the inn, and they were laying him in a manger. You know, we have our entire Christmas uh, manger scene comes out of this, right? And so the same God who relocated the entire population of the Roman Empire was also in control of the housing shortage in Bethlehem. We have to see, and this is one of the things I want us to see in Mary's Christmas. On the one hand, we have trial after trial after trial. On the other hand, we have evidence of God's presence, of God's care, of God's grace, and it's all going on at the same time. Does that sound familiar to you? That's the way it is for us as well. In the midst of our trials, we have evidence of God's kindness and mercy and grace. We would think, well, God, if you're so good at the mercy and grace, why not just not have the dumb trial? And God has his reasons. Because he's not preparing us to live in time on this planet. He's preparing us to live for eternity with him in heaven. And all the things that we go through, both the trials and the grace and the, and the kindness are all a part of that preparation so that we arrive in heaven ready to spend eternity with God. He's enlarging our capacity to appreciate him and to trust him. So God invites the humble to his birthday party. That is what is happening in this passage in chapter 2 of Luke's uh, gospel, verses 8 through 14, and there were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and said to them, fear not, for behold, I, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel. A multitude of heavenly hosts. Praising God and saying. Notice it doesn't say singing. Saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace. Among those with whom he is pleased. Now again. Huge. Huge theological and doctrinal implications in this passage, I'd like to point out just a few things here. First of all, we notice that God has chosen the shepherds to come to the birthday party, to the Christmas morning. Shepherds in this culture were not... We have to be careful because there's a ditch on both sides of the road. They are not the most honorable members of society. This is a lowly position. To be a shepherd and to be a shepherd boy is is connected with humility, and and not with great wealth. Uh, but the shepherds were also known to be a people of dignity, of of honor, of honesty. Uh, they had an important job, and their care for the sheep, whether they were their own sheep or the those that were belonged to a master. Uh, there was great diligence. And Jesus uses shepherds to illustrate some very positive attributes and things that we should all have. That shepherd who goes out and finds that one lost lamb and rejoices over it. And Jesus even refers to himself as the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep. So we want to to honor them, but also understand that these are not the this is not the mayor of Bethlehem we're, we're bringing in. These are, these are not the dignitaries. These are the humble. They're not the homeless, but they are the humble, okay? Now, the other thing we can point out here is they're guarding, uh, watching over their flock by night. And if this was in the middle of the winter, they wouldn't be doing this. They would be in, in an enclosed environment, something where they were being kept warm. The sheep would not be out in the middle of the night in the winter, so much as they would be in some place that was warm and more, more uh, safe uh, from, from freezing. Now, that puts a question on why do we have Christmas in December? You know, why do, we, why do we have Christmas in December? And the answer historically, and I think we need to be able to be honest with the world about this, It's because when the church began to dominate the culture around 300 years after the birth of Christ, uh, rather than cancel all the holidays, the church began to Christianize the holidays that already existed. And one of those was a holiday called Saturnalia. And Saturnalia was a big feast. It was like a Mardi Gras kind of a celebration. And the church simply uh, commandeered it. And they, they put the birth of Christ at the... Center. It was a, No one knew exactly when Christ was born, so we'll just go ahead and, and we'll just grab Saturnalia and we'll just dunk it and baptize it unconverted and, and bring it back up as Christmas. And that's what they did. And they did that with a lot of holidays, by the way. And so the question is, is that wrong then for us to celebrate Christmas on December 25th? And, and I'm of the opinion that it is not wrong... But we need to be cautious not to allow uh, paganism or even secular commercialism to so push aside the story of Christ's birth that we lose the point of it all. So whether you celebrate Christmas in the middle of August or whether you celebrate it in, in December the 25th, make sure you're celebrating the birth of Christ. And whatever you add to that, make sure that it has some clear connection to Christ. Jesus was a gift. God gave his son to the world. We give gifts to one another in order to follow his example. That's pretty cool, I think. You know, for children to know not that Santa Claus is giving them a gift, but that mom and dad have worked hard, saved up, bought this gift. It's here for you, and we're giving this to you in the honor of the God who gave us the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus Christ. Does, does that make sense? We don't have to run in terror away from the holiday. We can simply continue to keep it Christ-centered. And by doing that, we can share it with our neighbors, whether you want to have a Christmas tree as we do, I do, Uh, whether you want to hang up sprigs of holly as we do, you know, whether you have all all the rest, the paraphernalia of Christmas, it's all a matter of does it overshadow or does it magnify? the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus invited the shepherds to come and see the baby. And in Luke 2, verse 15, we read, And the shepherds went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Now, we, have, we keep finding that phrase, you know, wrapped in swaddling clothes, wrapped in swaddling, swaddling cloths. And swaddling cloths are uh, and are still used today in many cultures around the world. And some young mothers today also use swaddling cloth, but it was a way to make the baby feel like it was being held when it was laying in the, in the manger. It was, a, it was a tight wrapping of cloth that allowed the baby to feel kind of like it was still in the womb, kind of like it was being held in its mother's arms even though it was laying in a cradle or in the manger. And so the swaddling cloths were just a way of keeping the baby feeling hugged, okay? Now, that being the case, uh, the sign here was that the is in swaddling cloths and laying in a feed trough. And that's weird. You know, that doesn't happen all the time. And God uses that as a way of saying, this is the one. You know, you go find a baby and it's, it's not in a manger, that's not the one. You find one that's not wrapped in swaddling cloths but still laying in a manger, that's not the one either. It's the combination of being in the swaddling cloths, laying in a manger, that's the one. And there was only one like that that night in town. And the shepherds found him. And when they saw that child, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child by the angels, no doubt. And all who heard it wondered. doesn't say they believed, but they wondered, what's going on? What's this all about? But we're told, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. Now, this idea of Mary treasuring up all these things—we don't get a sense that she talks a lot. Have you noticed that? She doesn't say much, other than this magnificat that, that thats a quite a deal. But she doesn't—we don't see her saying very much. But she's watching and she's thinking. She's treasuring this up. If we—if she'd had the means, she might be taking notes. Okay, I mean, she—she is—she's etching this in her mind in such a way that she can later ponder it. Now, pondering is a deep level of mental processing. And when you ponder something, it's like you're, you're feeling the weight of it. You're rolling it around, looking at it from all angles. That's what pondering is all about. And so we're told that greater the works of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in them. And so delight is a means of getting you to that stage of deep level processing of a topic of of interest. And this is what makes Luke's gospel so rich in this part of his gospel. Luke obviously sought out Mary and interviewed her and captured all of this beautiful story from her perspective. Now we'll get back to that in a moment, but I just want you to file that away And think about the wonder of that, that Luke is actually interviewing the mother of Jesus Christ and she is telling him her story. And that's what we have in the Gospel of Luke. So Mary is bombarded by trials of faith, but she's also surrounded by clear evidences of God's grace. And another of those shows up in the next passage. Old Simeon. Finally gets his Christmas gift. Okay? In Luke 2, verse 21. At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now there was maybe I should go back for a moment and, and, and comment on this fact that um, when we get to Joseph's Christmas. There's a whole lot more that was going on at this time. They didn't just waltz in to Jerusalem and, and have the circumcision and, and everything was like a normal thing. They're dealing with all kinds of intrigue. They're dealing with other visitors. There's okay. <laughs> lots going on. And Mary says, oh yeah, we, we went to Jerusalem and he was circumcised. And we met this wonderful old man and his name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is the coming of the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would move from one person to another, but it did not reside on everybody in the way it does in the New Testament. When God said he was going to pour out his Spirit upon all flesh, that's a new thing. Because prior to that, the Spirit of God would come, for instance, to King Saul... And then he would depart from King Saul and instead come upon David, the true king. And so we see this over and over in the Old Testament. And now here we find the Holy Spirit is upon this man Simeon. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit. Notice how much the Holy Spirit is involved in this man's life. The Spirit is upon him. The Spirit is revealing things to him. The Spirit is guiding him into the temple at the right time for this to happen. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Think about how this must have blessed Mary's heart to hear this man prophesying over her baby in this way. And we know that what's going on in the background as this prophecy is being given to Mary is horrible. But that's Joseph's Christmas. Joseph tells us the stories of what was going on while Mary is basking in the glow of the Lord's prophecy over her child. Simeon's response confirmed all that Mary had been told, and I'm sure it gave her great peace in her heart. But Simeon also warned her of the trials to come. Simeon leans in close, and he blessed them, and he said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We get no more than that. Mary knows this is a big deal. There's a lot that's going to happen in consequence of this child's birth but then another person shows up in the scene. Old Anna. She just simply gives thanks and proclaims the glad tidings. Anna is not giving any warnings here. There was a prophetess named Anna, a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So we've got Simeon and Anna, and both of them are just blessing this child and announcing to the crowds, this is the one, this is the one we've been waiting for. So Anna's Christmas, just like Mary's Christmas, does not mention any of the hardships. It's the guys who mention the hardship. So Mary's Christmas skips over quite a lot. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 39... And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now if all we had from, uh, was the story from Luke, there's an awful lot that would be missing. Luke never mentions Joseph's plan to divorce Mary. He never mentions the visit of the Magi. He never mentions Herod's slaughter of the innocents, or even the exile to Egypt. They just went to Nazareth, according to Mary. They didn't go to Egypt. Now, some have pointed to this and said, see, there's contradictions in the Bible. These are not contradictions. These are the complementarian characteristics of a man and a woman. And the way that a woman goes through life experiences as opposed to the way a man goes through those same experiences. Because you see, in John chapter 16 and verse 21, Jesus tells us, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. I wonder whether Jesus had his own mother in mind as he tells this to the crowds. You see, Mary went through everything that Joseph went through. She was there. But when Luke comes and says, tell me the story, there's just joy. Just the joy. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that happened, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about Simeon and Anna and those shepherds, this is Mary's Christmas. Luke's account really is uniquely Mary's Christmas. And as we celebrate Christmas this year, let's not leave out Mary's perspective. And as we remember the lessons from this version, of the Christmas story, we see several things. Number one, Mary was favored by God. She was not chosen for her own merits. She was a recipient of God's grace. Number two, she was able to fulfill her calling by faith in God's mercy and grace, just like any of us would have to do. Mary is an example and a role model for us of how to respond to God's call in our lives. You know, someday, ladies, uh, your husband or your father may feel God's call to do something that doesn't make life easier. In fact, it makes life harder. And, And you will have to go through it with Him. And you can go through it with Him, just as Mary went through... All of this with Joseph, by God's mercy and grace, as you lean in hard upon him. Because God is good. In spite of all the difficulties, God is good. Number three, God gave her evidence of his constant care uh, at the same time she went through the difficult times, just as he does and just as he will for us. Expect to see evidence of God's being with you even though you're going through the valley of the shadow of death and great difficulty and great relational conflicts and, and great financial challenges and all the rest, and yet you see these evidence that God's got your phone number, you know, that He knows where you live, He's got your address, He's not missing anything. You don't need to worry about the, Him forgetting you, He's taking you through this in, in His own arms. And number four, Mary took and stored up in her heart all that had happened, and she probably pondered these things in her heart for the rest of her life. And so when Luke showed up to ask her to tell him her story, she had that story right there on her lips, ready to tell. And number five, after Jesus was born... All of her trials faded into the background. It was not that she didn't remember them. It's that she chose not to focus on them. And, you know, and, and that's, that's at least part of what it means to forgive someone. You don't forget it, but you don't focus on it. You know, she could have been angry at God. But she didn't focus on the hardship. She focused on the joy and the honor, the privilege of being favored by God to be the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now next week we're going to see just how hard some of those trials were. Uh, It'll be a little bit more manly message than today. But we're going to look at Joseph's Christmas. And I want you to notice that Joseph is often portrayed standing off to the side. The early church, in all of its art, has Joseph kind of always standing off to the side, leaning in, keeping his eye on that baby. But Mary is usually the focal point of everyone's attention. And so we're going to look at that next week. But today has been Mary's Christmas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness. I pray you take this story and plant it deep in our hearts, and Lord, help us to tell these things to our children during this holiday season. May we not forget to tell the story at the heart of this holiday, the story of both Mary and Joseph's Christmas. And may our children embrace that story, and may it be a foundation in their faith in what Jesus did for us on that cross when he died in our place and then rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. We ask it in Jesus' name.